Acts 23, and let's just read from verse 22. <clears throat> Acts 23, verse 22, it says, So the chief captain then let the young man depart, and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And when, uh, sorry, and he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen three score and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe under Felix the governor. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> so, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord, to gather and sing praises to your name and to come and spend some time now around your word and uh, the truths contained therein. Lord, we pray that you would take your word this morning, you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would teach us, you would instruct us, that, Lord, you would refresh us through your word. Lord, give me wisdom and guidance as I speak this morning. I pray that it would be your words and, and your thoughts. And, Lord, we pray that you would have your hand upon us and that you bless everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember last Sunday morning, we began looking at uh, the plot against Paul. Okay, we, we saw those 40-plus uh, zealous Jews uh, coming up with a plot to assassinate Paul. They made that oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until they'd killed him. You know, they believed strongly that that was what God wanted them to do. They were religious zealots. They believed they were doing the will of God, and they were so determined to carry out this task that they put themselves under a curse and we saw that it was literally the curse of God you know they were calling the judgment of God down upon them if they failed to carry through with this oath and they enlisted the help of the the chief priests and the elders remember we saw that they they needed the council the Sanhedrin to request that Paul would be brought down unto them one more time and on the way the plan was that they would assassinate Paul as he was brought down to the council. But of course, you know, even though they were meeting in secret and they were whispering and devising this plot, you know, they failed to take into account the fact that Paul is the servant of the Most High God. They failed to take into account that Paul is being watched over by God. And God saw every secret meeting that was taking place. And indeed, as we saw, God planted... Paul's young nephew in the vicinity of this plot to overhear it, to overhear the plan. And he ran to the castle, he ran to where Paul was being held and he informed Paul of this plot against his life. And so he saw God in his sovereignty making sure that their plans came to nothing. Their plans were found out before ever they were able to act upon it. And instead... God now uses their plans as a means of getting Paul moving again, getting Paul moving on his journey towards Rome. And this is where we pick up the account this morning. Now we see the, the chief captain's response to the plot against Paul's life. If you like, this is the final point of last week's sermon, which we didn't get to. Now the response to the plot against Paul's life. And we see, first of all, this morning, the emergency action taken. The emergency action taken. Just read again verse 23. It says, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, 
and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. Now provide them beasts, they may set Paul on and bring him safe under Felix the governor. <clears throat> we see the chief captain now reacting admirably. He listens to the information that is given to him by Paul's nephew. You know, he didn't need to do that. He could have dismissed him out of hand. He could have ignored this young man. He could have dismissed his report as being nothing but a fanciful story of a young teenager. But he didn't. Instead, the chief captain reacts honorably here and he immediately takes action. He sees the young man as being a credible source and he acts upon the information that's given to him. You know, throughout the book of Acts, Luke has highlighted for us constantly the fact that until now, well, right throughout the book of Acts, the Roman government has not been against believers. He's highlighted that for us time and time again. He's highlighted that the government is not against the Christians. There's no official Roman persecution against the church in these early days. Rather, the opposition came from the unbelieving Jews. This is where it kept coming from. It was always from the unbelieving Jews. You know, the Romans, for their most part, had treated them justly. They treated God's servants fairly, according to the law. And in fact, the Romans had been used by God as his tool to protect Paul on numerous occasions. And that's what happens here yet again, isn't it? God once again uses a Roman officer, this chief captain, he's been used a few times, hasn't he? God uses him one more time to protect Paul, to remove Paul from the threat of assassination. Now, in verse 23, we see the arrangements here being made, these arrangements to send Paul away immediately by night. It says, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. These arrangements now are made to swiftly take Paul out of the city by night under heavy escort and take him down to Caesarea, uh, the uh, capital city of the province of Judea. Now look at the escort that he's given here. You know, it consists of two centurions and the, the 200 men that are under their command. We've mentioned it before, but each centurion had 100 men, basically. And so basically these two take their 200 with them. But not only that, we're also told that they take 70 horsemen or they take cavalry with them as well. And then they take 200 spearmen. And so we've got a total of 470 plus the two, chief, uh, two centurions, 472 soldiers. This is a, an extensive force, isn't it? An incredibly large force is dispatched here to protect one man and a prisoner at that. Now, their commission here to leave, it says, at the third hour of the night, so they're leaving at 9 p.m. at night. That's when they're leaving the city. And so under the cover of darkness, Paul is here swiftly removed from danger, swiftly removed from the city with these 470 men guarding him. And they're not there to stop Paul from escaping, are they? They're not there to stop him from running. They're there to protect his life, to protect him from any attempt by these zealots against him, any attempt to assassinate him along the way. 
You know, basically, this means that half of the garrison stationed in Jerusalem leaves at 9 p.m. to take care of Paul. Half of the garrison leaves with Paul in the midst. Now, this seems like an excessive amount of men, doesn't it, to protect one man? You know, there are a couple of reasons why the captain would send so many. And the first of, all is, first of those sorry, is, once again, the fact that Paul is a Roman citizen. He's a Roman citizen, and he hasn't yet been condemned of any crime. And so he's making sure that he keeps Paul alive. It's in his best interest, isn't it? Because he will face repercussions if he lets him die. Okay? He's going to face questions about what happened. And so it's in his best interest to keep Paul alive at any cost. And the second reason is that right now in Jerusalem, there's frequent assassinations taking place. It's a place of turmoil. It's a place of unrest. We'll see a little bit later on when we look at Felix. It's a place of unrest. There's a lot of uh, civil unrest going on, assassinations taking place by the fanatical Jews. And so he takes this threat very seriously. He's not taking any chances here. He's very cautious concerning this situation. You know, as I was looking at it, Ultimately, the reason why he has 470 men guard him is because God said so. That's really what comes down to, isn't it? This is the sovereignty of God again. God makes sure that his servant, Paul, has an escort that's really fit for a king. This is how a king would travel, you know, with this, this whole uh, 470 men, this whole army with him. This is how a king would travel. And yet here we have Paul. He's a prisoner, but he's been transported in this manner. This is God watching over Paul yet again, isn't it? I just, as I was reading this week, I thought it's just it's amazing, isn't it? You know, the Jews are trying their best to get rid of him. They've got 40 men. God gives Paul 470 men. The Lord takes care of him. It's an escort fit for a king. The providential care of God is once again clearly evident, isn't it? God's hand upon his servant. We see secondly now the letter that's sent with Paul, the letter. In verse 25 we read, it says, And he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor Felix sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews lay wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Verse 25 to verse 30, we have now recorded for us this letter written by the chief captain. And it's a letter outlining the reason why he sent Paul to Caesarea. And this was the normal requirement when a prisoner was transported, when he was forwarded to a superior officer, the subordinate officer was required to write a letter explaining why he was being sent, outlining the case, outlining the charges, if you like, against this man. And so we have recorded for us this letter from the chief captain addressed to the governor of Judea. You know, this is the only time in the New Testament that we have recorded for us a secular letter. This is a secular letter written by this chief captain and it's recorded for us in the Word of God. 
You know, the question might be asked, how is it that Luke was able to get hold of this letter? How is it that he's able to quote this letter for us? You know, some have suggested that this is merely a summary of the chief captain's letter, a summary of the contents. But, you know, the realistic style of the letter seems to suggest that Luke is actually looking at it. He knows exactly what it says. He had access to it. Now, the commentator Williams, he said this, its realistic style makes it possible that Luke had seen it or at least heard it read, perhaps in open court before Felix. Or a copy may have been given to Paul as part of the documentation for his appeal to Caesar. It bears the impress of what a Roman officer might have said. And so it seems that he has at least heard it. At least maybe he was sitting in the court as Paul is being examined, as we'll see. Tonight we start looking at that. I'm standing before Felix. Perhaps he's there and he hears this letter read. But you know, it definitely reads like Luke has access to it, doesn't it? It definitely reads like Luke is quoting this letter for us. You know, regardless, we don't have any problem believing that, do we? Because this is the inspired word of God. And so we have no problem believing that he is able to quote for us the letter written by the chief captain and quote it with accuracy. It's the word of God. And the letter now follows the standard formula of the day. It begins with the writer's name. It's followed by the person who it's addressed to. And then there's a word of greeting. That's verse 26. It says, Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor, Felix, sendeth greeting. For the first time, we're told the chief captain's name. Now, we've mentioned it before because we've come to this verse. But his name is Claudius Lysias. And we learn that he is addressing this letter here to the most excellent governor, Felix. Now, Felix, most excellent, probably doesn't really describe him. It's a title, doesn't describe the man. Felix. Felix was known in history as Antonius Felix. And he was known to be a man of dubious character. He was the governor of Judea from the years of AD 52 to AD 59. And Felix is an interesting one because he was actually born a slave. He was a slave. And he was made free. He was given his freedom by Antonia, which is why he took on that name. Antonia was the mother of Emperor Claudius. And he was the first ex-slave in Roman history to become the governor of a province. And so he's taken from the lowest state you can possibly have to being the governor over all of Judea. And he owed this position to the influence of his brother, Pallas. Pallas was also a freed slave, and he was in Rome, and he had the ear of Emperor Claudius and later Nero. And so he was the family connection. That was what got him this position. He didn't deserve it. He had no right to it. He ended up with it because of his brother had the ear of the emperor. And his term in office as governor was marked by increasing insurgent activity. It was a time of unrest throughout the province of Judea. You know, he dealt with <clears throat> these uprisings ruthlessly, and all that did was alienate the people even more and led to even more uprisings. He basically just fueled the fire because he was so ruthless in his dealing with the people. Now, one commentator said this, the Jewish historian Josephus portrayed Felix as an incompetent administrator who used excessive violence and allowed citizens to be plundered by 
uh, roving gangs of rebels. Under his tenor, uh, political instability and violence reached new heights. He doesn't sound like a very good governor, does he? The, the place is in turmoil. Things are not going well in Judea at this time. The Roman historian Tactus, he said that Felix exercised the, exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Evidently, he didn't grow, outgrow his lowly origins, did he? He still acted like a slave, even though he was in this position of authority. I say all that because it's to this man this letter's addressed. It doesn't seem like a, a good man to be handing Paul into the hands of, to entrusting Paul now to be taken care of by this man, Felix, this governor who is not a very good governor at all. You know, in verse 27 to verse 30, we have the main body now of this letter. And what we see here is that, you know, Lysias here presents, uh, presents sorry, the essential facts of the case, but he does it in a way that portrays himself in a good light. Just read verse 27. It says, This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews lay wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. You know, he's very... Um, good with the facts here, isn't he, in the way he presents them. You know, Lysias' letter has been called by commentators fairly honourable but decidedly self-centred. Or a dexterous, clever, skillful mixture of truth and falsehood. You see, Lysias obviously wanted to make sure that he came out looking good, that he wasn't made to look bad by anything that happened. And so he's rather loose here with the handling of the truth, isn't he? You can see this in verse 27 where he claims that he rescued Paul from the Jews with an army. That part's true, isn't it? But he says, I did it because I knew he was a Roman citizen. He says um, in verse 27 there, then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And so he says, the whole reason I raced down into the temple I took him is because I knew he was a Roman citizen. He conveniently leaves out the fact that he had no idea that he was a Roman when he raced down into the temple. He actually thought Paul was an Egyptian, didn't he? He thought he was an Egyptian insurrectionist. Just to read uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 38. Acts 21, verse 38 says, Art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness for thousand men that were murderers? He thought Paul was this leader of insurrection, this Egyptian. He had no idea he was a Roman when he raced down into the temple. You know, he also fails to mention that he bound Paul and he was about to scourge Paul until Paul told him of his Roman citizenship. I mean, he goes on in verse 28, he says, And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council. He totally leaves out that part, doesn't he? Should have been there between verse 27 and 28 that he bound him up and he was going to scourge him. He leaves that out altogether. 
He doesn't mention this because he knows that he'll be in trouble for it. So he leaves it out. And instead he goes straight into the fact that he brought Paul before the council. And so while the essential facts of the case are there, you know, the, the truth is there, it's also presented very loosely, isn't it? Uh, very loosely because he wants to make sure he looks good. But you know, the most important part of this whole letter, I believe, is verse 29. Look at verse 29. It says, Whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Lysias there declares, <coughs> Excuse me. He declares that Paul has done nothing worthy of death or of bonds. That's a pretty strong declaration, isn't it? He declares he's, he's, he's innocent. He's done nothing to be worthy of death or of bonds. Now remember, Lysias, he spent a lot of time trying to understand why Paul was attacked, what it is the Jews had against him. Now that's why he sent him down to the Sanhedrin in the first place, wasn't it? To try and get to the bottom of it all, to finally understand the charges. Uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 30, sorry. <clears throat> Chapter 22, verse 30, it says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the whole reason he brought him before the Sanhedrin. He wanted to find out what it is that Paul's done wrong. Why are they so upset with him? And of course, that meeting didn't go well. You know, they ended up being... Uh, divided because Paul said something about the resurrection. And they were divided and they were fighting amongst themselves and Lysias had to rescue Paul. But you know, despite the confusion of that meeting, Lysias evidently had learned something important. He learned and seen enough to understand that the accusations against Paul were simply theological. They were not criminal charges. It was theological. That's what he says in verse 30. Uh, sorry, verse 29, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law. He says, I understood this much at least, that they were accusing him because of his beliefs, his theological beliefs. It had nothing to do with committing a crime. It was that they didn't agree with his position theologically. Paul had done nothing worthy of death or even imprisonment. You know, in the eyes of the law... Paul was an innocent man, wasn't he? He was innocent. And the reality is that Paul was there in prison simply for his faith, and Lysias actually declares that, doesn't he? He says the only thing they've got against him is his faith. That's why they're upset. That's why he's here before you, his faith, his beliefs. That was all they had against Paul. You know what a testimony that was for Paul as the man of God. You think about it, he's been in Lysias' custody for a couple of days and during that time Lysias has found nothing to accuse Paul of in the eyes of the law in the eyes of the law Paul is blameless he's blameless before men you know Philippians 2 verse 15 Paul speaks about that idea to the Philippians just go there Philippians 2 in Philippians 2 verse 15 Paul writes this, he says, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul told the Philippians, and, and indeed us, that we are to be blameless and harmless as the sons of God. And of course, he's not talking about being sinless, sinless perfection, that's not possible. Rather, it's the idea of being blameless in our daily conduct, that there's nothing for them to lay hold of and accuse us and nothing to bring the name of Christ into disrepute. Now, we live in a crooked and perverse nation, don't we? And our responsibility as believers is to be blameless and harmless, to be a shining light of righteousness. We'd have been an example of righteousness. And, you know, if we then suffer for righteousness' sake, praise God. That's the right reason to suffer. Now, isn't that what 1 Peter 4 tells us? Let's turn there. We, we've read it before, but 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> First Peter 4 and verse 13 says, But rejoice insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, and as a busybody in other men's business. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. I mean, Peter puts it pretty clear, doesn't he? He says, if we're going to suffer, it needs to be for the right reason, for our faith, for righteousness, not because we're causing problems in the eyes of the law. And you know, this was certainly, certainly true of Paul. Paul was not there in that Roman prison suffering because he'd broken any law. He hadn't been causing Problems in the eyes of the law. He hadn't been stirring up trouble, disturbing the peace. Paul was there. Why? Because he'd simply been preaching Christ. He was there because of his faith. The Jews didn't like the fact that he was preaching the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. <clears throat> so he was there for his faith, for righteousness' sake. Elias then concludes the letter in verse 30. With a simple farewell. Uh, he, sorry, he informs him of the assassination plot and then he simply says, farewell. It says, and when, he, <clears throat> when it was told me how the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent, thee, sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. So he concludes basically by saying, I've sent him now to you. You can deal with him. And he says, and I've told all these accusers to come and stand before you. And then he says, farewell. You know, with this letter now in hand, we see the soldiers leave Jerusalem and they now travel towards Caesarea. Now let's just look lastly this morning at the journey. The journey. <clears throat> Verse 31. It says, Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Ant Antipatris on the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle. They now leave Jerusalem as they were instructed around 9pm. Paul has his escort of 470 men with him and they travel now through the night before arriving at Antipatris the next day. Now this is a distance of around 64 kilometres they travel in this short period of time. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? This is a, a quick march, a forced march 
to uh, this city, 64 kilometres away. And much of this journey is down a, a rather steep uh, descent, a, a steep gradient. But even still, the fact that these soldiers could complete this march in such a short period of time is testimony to the, the Roman army, isn't it? The efficiency of them. And this town was on the border of Judea and Samaria and it served as a military way station. It's basically like a military outpost, if you like. It was built by Herod the Great and it was named in honour of his father, Antipater. He named it after his father. Once they arrive in this city, we're told the soldiers now turn back. They return to Jerusalem and they leave Paul with the 70 horsemen. Verse 32, it says, On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle. So they basically, they believe they're now out of reach of the assassination attempt, which is probably true. They're safe. They've got these 64 Ks away. They're safe. So they turn back. The 200 soldiers and the 200 spearmen all return. And Paul is now left traveling solely with the 70 horsemen. From here, they now complete the final 40-kilometer journey to Caesarea. Verse 33, it says, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. So they now make the final push to Caesarea, this final 40 kilometres. Caesarea is a, a coastal city. It was built by Herod the Great, and it was built to be a major seaport. It boasted the largest artificial harbour ever built up to that point in history. It covered 40 acres and it could accommodate 300 ships. And the remains of it are still there today. You can see it today. This is the city that is the the centre of Judea at the time. This is the capital city. You know, as much as it was a great city, it was like many other capital Roman cities. It was a place of wickedness. It was a place of wickedness and sin. It was a place with many pagan temples that had one of their their amphitheatres. They could seat 5,000 people. And we know what went on in those places. And because of the city's flagrant paganism, many of the Jews wouldn't even enter the city. Even though it's in Judea, they wouldn't go near Caesarea because of how wicked this city was, even though it's the capital city. They avoided it like the plague. And upon arriving in Caesarea, the military escort now delivers the letter and they deliver Paul into the hands of Felix. And in verse 34 and 35, we see Felix's response. It says, And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Felix, in his response, actually acts in accordance with the law. You know, earlier on we highlighted his dubious character, didn't we? We talked about how he was not a good governor at all. He was a, a violent man. He was a man who oppressed everybody. And, you know, we, we wouldn't be surprised to learn here that when Paul arrives, he just says, go and execute him, get rid of him. We wouldn't be surprised to read that, would we? But instead, Felix here actually acts in accordance with the law. He does the right thing. And he asks Paul what province... Is he from? That's what he asks him when he arrives. And Paul responds that he's from Cilicia. And basically the whole point of this is he's establishing whether he has the right to try the case. He's 
finding out whether Paul is under his jurisdiction. And basically at this time, Cilicia was under his jurisdiction. Later on it would become separate, but right now it was. And so he understands that Paul is his responsibility and he determines that he's going to give Paul a full hearing. That's what he says there. He says in verse 35, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. He says, I'm going to hear thee. I will listen. I will uh, hear this case. I will try it when your accusers arrive from Jerusalem. And then he keeps Paul, it says, in Herod's judgment hall. Basically, Herod's judgment hall is the palace. This is the palace there in Caesarea, built by Herod. It was the place where the governor now had, had his official residence. And so Paul is being kept, not in the common prison, he's being kept in the palace. He's probably still locked up, but he's kept in the palace, in custody there, until his accusers arrive, and we'll see them arrive this evening. You know, Paul is now going to spend the next four years in custody. First of all, here at Caesarea, two years, and then later on in Rome. And if we include Paul's travel time, he's going to spend basically the next five years of his life in custody. You know, back before Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he had been warned by the Spirit of what was waiting for him. Let's turn back there. We're almost finished this morning. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Acts 20 and verse 23. Oh, we'll say verse 22, sorry. It says, And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abideth me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, Paul was warned by the Holy Spirit, Paul, this is what's coming. Bonds and afflictions are awaiting you. And Paul's response was, none of these things move me. He says, I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to do what the Lord has given me to do. I'm going to testify of the gospel. I'm going to do... God's will, no matter what comes. You know, Paul could have looked for the easy way out, couldn't he? He could have looked for the easy way out, but instead he surrendered to the will of God, no matter the cost. And he went to Jerusalem knowing what was before him. But you know, the reason that Paul could make that decision was because he knew his God. He knew that God would not fail him. He knew that God would be with him. Through it all. And indeed, right throughout the events of chapter 23, we've seen God be with him, haven't we? We've seen God's providential care every step of the way. The Lord has protected Paul. The Lord has taken care of him, using his nephew to protect him, using the Romans to protect him, giving him an escort of 470 men. God has taken care of his servants. The point is, Paul is right where God wants him to be, isn't he? God could have got him out of prison if that's what God wanted. But right now, God's will for Paul is to be there in prison. God hasn't forgotten him. God hasn't turned his back on his servant. God is not unaware of what's taken place. God is watching it all take place. And God is taking care of him all the way. As I said, Paul is right where God wants him to be. 
And you know, like Paul, we can dare to do the will of God no matter the cost because we know that our God is dependable. Don't we? If God has told us to do something, it doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter what's going to come. God won't fail us. God is with us. If we're doing his will, then whatever comes our way, God is in control. God has a reason. God has a plan. He will not fail us. Now, the Lord is with us, and indeed we have nothing to fear. Now, Psalm 34 and verse 7 came to mind this week. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Paul is there in that prison right now, and the Lord is camped around about him, isn't he? The Lord's with him. The Lord's watching over his servant, and the Lord will deliver him in his time. The same is true for us as we do the will of God. No matter what comes our way, God is there with us. He's watching over us. He's in control. He's there. We have nothing to fear. Because God will take care of us. God will bring us through it or God will deliver us from it. God is in control. Praise God for the fact that he is sovereign. We said it last week and we said it again this week because it all goes together, doesn't it? The sovereignty of our God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that all through this chapter, all through Paul's life, we can see your sovereign hand, see your providential care. Lord, you just uh, Lord, took care of him and Paul is right where you want him to be. It may seem to be a place that doesn't make sense to us in prison, but Lord, you had a plan, you had a purpose. And Lord, you were protecting him, watching over him. And Lord, I pray you help us to realize the same thing. May we be bold to do your will, no matter the cost, knowing that Lord, you will never forsake us, you will never fail us. And that, Lord, you are right there with us through every trial, every test. And that, Lord, you will give us the strength and you will deliver us in your time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.